Welcome to the Hope on the Hard Road podcast, where you and your family can find community, find encouragement, and find hope for the road ahead. Speak encouraging words to one another. Build up hope so that you will all be together in this. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Hey guys, today we're sharing another great episode in our therapy series. Megan Sprague is the Clinical Director of ABA at Hope Comprehensive Center for Development and a board-certified behavior analyst who, even at a young age, was passionate about helping those around her with special needs. On this episode, Megan shares some valuable insights into behaviors and gives some timely advice as we head into the holiday season, a time when our kids find themselves off schedule and often dysregulated. Megan, we're so excited to have you on today's podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you started in the work of ABA? Um, I have been a behavior analyst since 2009, but I feel like I have, well, I guess officially been a behavior analyst since 2009, but I have been doing it, I think, my entire life. I used to drive my mom a little crazy because I would seek out the kiddos in, in the class that I was in that were struggling or didn't have friends or had special needs, and I always gravitated towards them. And so in order to get their grades up or something, I would promise them my toys, <laughs> which it was it was working, but I was um, taking my toys and giving them away at school, which wasn't always <laughs> the best option. But we always got the feedback, you know, that... Um, I would tell the other kids that they either had to include the kids in the class that nobody wanted to, or they didn't get to be my friend. And so um, I think I came by it naturally. I've been doing this my whole life. And then in, I wanted to be a marriage and family therapist with an emphasis in families that have um, special needs in their immediate um, space. Um, but then I found a little guy when I was in college that was three and he had autism and his mom needed a therapist. And so I found behavior analysis and never turned back after that. Oh, that is so great. <laughs> so again, we're talking today about ABA. So what is ABA and when does a child or teen need it? So ABA in and of itself, if you want to be fancy, it's the scientific approach to understanding behavior. So um, it's, it is the only empiric empirically validated um, method for um, really working with people on the spectrum and related disabilities. Uh, what I tell people, what I tell parents and, and new staff and things like that, and the way I like to categorize it is that it's individualized instruction. So we're, we're using a set of procedures and principles and all of the research that has been conducted about behavior and we're applying it in a way that we can meet our learners, figure out what holes and deficits they have and help to teach them those skills needed so that they can function in their world, um, honestly. And so a lot of times it's the little guys that parents are concerned and they're, they're seeking those evaluations for, for autism or anything under the autism umbrella of the autism spectrum disorder. There's lots of stuff under there that's related. Um, and they're, they're needing help to catch up to their peers, to be able to speak, to be able to socially um, interact with other people, uh, those types of things. So how can a parent obtain ABA for their child? And what should they look for when looking for a therapist? <laughs> 
um, the way to gain access to ABA is usually you're along the path of seeking a diagnosis. Parents have noted that there is something not right um, in how their child is developing. And I think that's of note too. Parents um, a lot of times struggle in that process of feeling like there is something wrong or something's not developing correctly. And they're kind of pushed aside by doctors or clinicians that are like, no, he's just a boy and boys talk later, or no, girls don't get diagnosed as often. They're fine. Everything's okay. And I think a lot of times parents are hushed on some of their concerns. So something I tell parents all the time is if you feel like there is something wrong or there's something is not developing how um, you think it should be, I always say to go with that parent intuition and to really seek out an evaluation. So that I guess is where you start is an evaluation, developmental evaluation by usually a developmental pediatrician or a psychiatrist or a psychologist, anyone that has diagnosing power. And if you're being told no by pediatricians or other people, find a new one and and continue down that path. And I, I think the earlier we can get services is best. So, um, I start with that. So usually it, it is around the time of an autism diagnosis or something related um, that they will get the diagnosis and then be in a situation of what do we do now? And so that next step is ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis, and finding a company that really matches with your values for your family. Um, and how you think treatment should go. There is in, in center um, sessions and ABA, there's in-home ABA, um, there's school-based ABA. And so really finding a place and a company that kind of encompasses how you feel most comfortable for that kind of thing to be happening. Um, I will say in, in autism, there's a lot of fad treatments and a lot of people that kind of prey and capitalize on parents that are in crisis. And so really what you're wanting to look for are those credentials of being a board certified behavior analyst. The people who are BCBAs like myself have gone through um, the, the coursework necessary for that. They have a master's degree. They know about behavior analysis and the principles of behavior and how to apply that to people with autism and disabilities. Um, and so if it's just people that are kind of claiming to be some things, but they don't have the right background in education and supervision and standards, that's when the red flags go up. So you're definitely wanting to look for people that are board certified and are on track, you know, to um, be doing this in the way that we're all trained to do it. We're bound by an ethical code. We have standards that, um, you know, are ever changing and, and improving. So um, that's probably the most important thing. And when you're looking to find someone. So looking at the, the next um, area, what does a, an ABA session actually look like? Yeah, so I think um, personally and, and how I practice, I think that it looks different for pretty much everyone that we're working with. So ABA can work with really, I mean, when you're studying behavior analysis in and of itself, there's a lot of different avenues you can take. You can go the, the applied route with um, people and disability and that sort of thing. There are people who apply behavior analysis in corporations and companies to make them work better. There's people that work with animals. It's a really large um, field that I think a lot of people don't really understand. So that's fun to point out. But also, 
we service a really wide range of ages and skill levels and capabilities. And so um, a session for a three-year-old is going to look a lot different than a session for an 18-year-old. So I, I will say that. But in general, it all depends on how many hours you have been given of ABA um, per week. And so if I'm talking about early intervention, the little guys like three to 10 ish, um, they can have anywhere. Our minimum at my company is six hours per week, all the way up to 40 hours per week. The research does suggest that in early intervention, um, that it is intensive that, and people worry about that, that can my kiddo really handle 40 hours of, of this kind of therapy? And it's, it's good to kind of get a lot of practice in at the beginning and to retrain some of those, um, you know, more negative ways of getting what they're wanting and things like that um, from an early age. So it is better to start with more and then decrease later. Um, the way I um, focus our program is that we're very rapport-based. We spend the first couple of weeks just building rapport and getting to know the client and the family and the dynamic and the flow um, and making sure that we're in a space where the kids are inviting us to be our teachers and that we're not necessarily just walking in and starting to drill and starting to work. I, my philosophy is that ABA should be something that is approach-based and is child-led and that they're happy when, when the therapists get there and they're happy to engage in, in the programming um, that we're working on. So a lot of play-based naturalistic um, techniques where we're just kind of embedding everything that they're working on into the play. And so the work that's happening doesn't seem like work most of the time that they feel like they're, they're having a good time and they're playing. And I say that with a grain of salt because learning is also hard at the same time. And so sometimes when they're learning new skills, there, there is some upset, there is some tantrums, there is some pushing through some of that stuff, but on, as a whole, when you look at the program, it should seem happy. And so sessions typically are two to three hours, um, and that happens multiple times a week. And so we have a couple levels of therapists that work with kids. The, the overseeing person is the BCBA. So they're the ones that assess the children. They figure out where those holes are in the learning. They break the skills down to their smallest pieces, and we start teaching from the bottom up, like foundation of house. Um, and then the people doing the direct therapy that are there playing and working on those goals daily are called registered behavior technicians or just behavior technicians. And those are the people that are um, entry level working with the kiddos. And then we do have a level that are mid tiers that we call um, program managers that are usually behavior analysts in training and there are grad students. And so they um, come in and assist the behavior analysts. So it's kind of a robust big team that's there to support everybody. And there's a lot of play, there's potty training, there's a lot of language going on. Um, we will go out into the community. For instance, I've had kids where public bathrooms were really hard for them to handle, sensory issues, wanting to cover their ears and not go in there. And so we spent a lot of time in Target sitting on the bathroom floor. Um, you know, those kinds of things. I always tell people that it's, we want to be in your life where your life is difficult so that we can make those things easier. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We also had that issue with public bathrooms. <laughs> I think a lot of it is the, um, the electric automatic flushing toilets, poor things. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Um, as we're looking at this, what what would a typical session look like for the older kiddos, uh, for the teens even? 
So that that's always ever changing too. I mean, sometimes we'll spend a lot of time playing video games. And I think a lot of times the older kiddos need more of the talk-based therapy so that we can, um, a lot of times I'll program more scenarios that they have to respond to. Um, so if you have a kid that's having trouble with sarcasm, um, I'll come up with scenarios of, you know, different ways you can say things and different things you can do with your face and, and talking about whether or not it was a positive interaction or a negative interaction. So you walk into school and a girl looks at you and says, Oh, I like your outfit. Obviously they don't actually like your outfit and you're going to respond differently than if they did so that you're minimizing some of that social upset. Um, and so when they're older, I think you can have a lot more conversation about things depending on their skill level. Um, some of the older learners still their sessions tend to look like the the younger kiddos and, and that's okay too. Um, it just all is very, it should be very dynamic and very based on what every learner is using or is working on. Love how ABA therapy is so individualized and you guys are really in tune to what the kids need and working on their level and, and, and really uh, coming in right where they're at. And yet I know you guys have kind of a generalized approach of ABA, ABC analysis. Um, could you explain what that is and what you're looking for, kind of the functions of behavior uh, as you're going through sessions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's one of the big things we're doing. I mean, in behavior analysis, it's not, I'd like to say it's and magic and we come in with a magic wand and we fix things. But usually what we're doing is really just looking at the environment and what's happening before and after certain behaviors, either things that we want to increase or things that we want to decrease. And then we manipulate what's happening before and after to get the desired outcome and to teach better ways of accessing um, reinforcement or rewards or things that we're wanting to gain access to. So there's four main functions of behavior. Um, the four main functions are there's a, there's a sensory function, which is also sometimes called automatic reinforcement. And this is some of those stereotypical behaviors that you have hand flapping and body rocking and things like that, lining things up. Um, sometimes problem behavior in the form of self-injurious behavior is also serving a sensory function. It, kids like deep pressure. Um, and so they're trying to relieve some of those needs by engaging in some of those things. The second function is escape. So we are, and this is not just for people with disabilities, this is everybody across the board. So, um, you know, we are trying to escape something that we find aversive. And so we engage in a lot of different things. Um, I've had kids that escaped by, you know, throwing the pencil and the paper, clearing the table and running away. I've also had um, kids who I call it emotional manipulation, where their escape is a lot sweeter and kinder. And mommy, I love you. Mommy, can I give you a hug? Mommy. And when it's nice like that, parents and caregivers are a lot, lot more likely to engage in those things, which is just prolonging whatever they're trying to avoid. Um, there's access to tangibles. So you've got something or there is something out there in the world that I want, and I'm going to engage in a number of different things to get that. Um, and then access to attention. 
So I'm doing things either appropriate or inappropriate in order to get people to pay attention to me. Um, and so what we'll do a lot of times at the start of session, at the start of like a whole program when we have a new client or if anything new crops up and a lot of parents' first goals when they're entering into ABA is to learn about what you're asking about, ABC analysis. And so basically that's antecedent behavior consequence. So what's happening, the behavior in and of itself, what's happening before it and what's happening immediately after it. And in those situations, I often have to tell parents, I'm wanting you to be really honest. So if every time you are, he's hitting his head, you're giving him gummy bears, I need to know that. And it's not a judgment. It's just, I need a clear objective picture of what's happening so that we can change those types of things. So a lot of times I'll just take a piece of paper, write ABC and, um, you know, make lines. And every time a behavior happens that you're wanting to reduce usually is what we're using ABC for, or you could do it the other way. Um, for lack of a better example, hitting oneself on their head. Um, basically when that happens, you would note it and then you would think about what happened right before it. So I asked him to put on his shoes and he hit his head. And then you think about what happened right after that. Um, he hit his head and then I hugged him or he hit his head and I asked him again to put on his shoes or he hit his head and we decided not to go out. Um, we don't need the shoes, it's fine. Um, all of those things are really important information on what's driving that head hitting. And if you can do that for a while and realize some patterns, um, then you can manipulate what's happening before and after. If you know that it's usually demand and he's escaping that demand of, of putting his shoes on, we know kind of how to manipulate the end result. So the most easiest way to apply this is like tantruming. Um, and if you have tantrums and you know, and you've looked at your ABC data and you have figured out that attention is what this tantrum is functioning for, you know that the last thing you're gonna wanna give for that tantrum is attention. So in that case, a lot of times with my kids at home, if there's a tantrum happening, I'll be like, okay, tell me when you're finished with that and I'll go walk away and wait for them to calm down and come talk to me in an appropriate way. Um, and so if, the, if it's escape, we know that we cannot remove that demand. We need to follow through with the demand and reinforce following through and, and putting the shoes on. Um, and then over time, that behavior of tantruming because I don't like the demand of putting my shoes on is going to decrease because it doesn't work for me. If it always works, um, then that behavior is going to maintain. So the hardest part is when you do figure out what is rewarding some of those problematic behaviors is trying to remove that because um, that takes a lot of time the tantrum is usually going to get bigger before it gets better. And so we have to be thoughtful and mindful of when we're choosing those battles as well, which is an important um, point for parents. Um, I'll tell them a lot of times, you know, it's, it's picking your battles. And if you're going to give in, you know, at some point you're going to give in because you're too tired. It's been a very long day. Um, you're busy and you have to get out of the house and you don't have time to deal with this teaching moment. If you give in right away, it's so much better than giving in after you have been 
going through the tantrum and everything. Um, when we do that, we're just teaching to do a longer tantrum in order to get what we want. Um, so there's a lot that goes into it, but when it's broken down to its smallest pieces, that's what we're looking for. We're trying to figure out what which of those functions it is and then how we can change the environment for that learner so that it's more likely they'll do what we want them to do or what's best for them to do. Mm-hmm. In an effort to help parents, you know, as they're at home working with their kids, what's some of the simple things that parents can do to help their child calm and regulate their bodies when frustrated and agitated? And also, how do you work with a child or teen with extreme behaviors to help them calm and be safe and move forward in their day? Okay. Um, with teens, I will say it depends on if you can rationalize things with them. Um, there are some some teams that teens that you can explain why things don't work the way you're currently doing it, and and why that might cause a problem with accessing things that they're wanting to do. And you can kind of come up with a plan with them. We've done behavioral contracts where they're actually signing their name to the the plan of. Um, you know, how they're going to interact in the future so that they can access things that they're wanting to access. Um, And so if you have that ability to talk them through it, I'm always very honest with all my learners about what's going on. I get their input, what they're wanting. I've had kids in the past that all he wanted in life was for ABA to be over and um, for us to not follow him around and ask him to do things. And I was like, absolutely, that's a fantastic goal. Let's sit down and write out what that would look like. At what point are we able to not be here anymore or to back off and be part of that with me. And let's talk about like, we have to be able to trust you when you're in the community. We have to be able to trust that when mom tells you to do something, you're gonna do it, those types of things. we made a list and he was working towards that. And anytime he would falter, we could be like, remember buddy, like we're working on trying to um, graduate from this program. And if you're doing X, Y, and Z, that's not going to happen. So that's one case. Um, If you're working with littler guys and you're just trying to foster being able to calm, um, a lot of times I will definitely let them feel their feelings. I understand that you're feeling frustrated right now. I understand that you're sad or you're upset. You're angry with me and all those things are okay. And I get angry too. Um, But helping them to realize like, first, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and then we can have something else. Um, Making sure that we're embedding reinforcement into their day and their activities so that they are getting feedback on when they are handling things appropriately and they are doing things well. And that's what gets them to their reinforcers, Um, depending on how upset um, they are. I'll squeeze kids. I'll be talking to them and I'm squeezing their arms and I'm squeezing their legs. And a lot of times some of that pressure, um, you know, definitely helps them to calm and come back to a centered place. There are kids that need time to kind of, once they're past a certain exit on the curve of being upset, they have to go be by themselves and, and go through the whole, the whole process of getting really, really upset and then coming back down. And now we can have a conversation. So like with anything else, I guess I say, it's all dependent on what those kids are needing and, and each individualized, um, 
program, helping to teach them to advocate for themselves. I need a minute or I need a break or, you know, get out of my face or I need a hug and I need kindness and, and that kind of stuff. So there's programming that goes into all of that. And then just looking at each person and seeing how, how they react to, um, you know, being upset and helping them to find ways that are not punching holes in walls or screaming, but are um, counting and breathing and asking for a break. It's all dependent. Yeah. I really like the uh, approach of ownership and uh, that you're talking about the and advocating for themselves, for the kids, um, you know, and, and kids are at different levels and being able to do that. But uh Along those lines, what types of supports and approaches can be used to help facilitate, say, daily activities for the kids while they're working on goals, uh, whether it be a child or or a teenager even? So in terms of looking at daily activities and, and just setting everybody up for success, we always want to kind of be giving our attention and focus and praise on things that the kiddos are doing well um, and accepting approximations to those things. So we obviously have the overall goal of doing our homework without complaining and without taking 17 million breaks. Um, But we will also have to break that down and start with maybe doing five minutes of homework without complaining and then getting some sort of reward or tangible or break or something fun, a sticker for that. So there's, there's token systems you can use um, along to apply to really anything they're doing, taking turns, doing homework, um, using their words, imitating sounds, that every time they do those things, they get a certain token. And when they fill up the tokens, they get to, you know, cash it in for something bigger, Um, which is a process in and of itself. You have to start with one token and then you get the prize and then you can work up to to lots of tokens and and fading back your reinforcement schedule. Um, We can look at Usually we should be breaking things down to just really small, tiny, really attainable goals so that when they do do it, they can, they can celebrate, they can get that reward and they can, um, you know, improve in that way. And then making sure that we're upping the ante and making things more difficult as they go along. Um, And that applies to the small kiddos as well as the teenagers, making sure that we A lot of times I focus with families on having to really switch in their head what their focus is. It's very easy, especially when you're tired and overwhelmed, to be focusing on, oh, he ate his food, but he didn't put it in the sink. And and all these things that are wrong with what's going on. Stop doing that. Stop saying that to your sister. Don't climb on there. All those types of things. And a lot of times I'll work on just flipping that to the positive. We keep our feet on the floor. Let's tell them what to do instead of what not to do. Because a lot of times they don't hear the not um, in typically developing as well as people with disabilities. Um, Telling them what to do, setting expectations for them pretty much in every situation. Okay, we're going to get in the car. When we get there, we're going to put our seatbelt on. But then we get to be at grandma's house. You know, those types of Every activity, I'm going to tell you what's expected. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen because our kiddos, they thrive on that consistency and structure. And so making sure that they know what to expect and they know how you're expecting them to behave and what they get for that. People get really 
kind of nervous about reinforcing every little step and, and like too much rewarding. Um, but I always let everybody know that at first you got to pay a little more heavily for the things that are hard. And then over time we can, we can back that off. Nobody's going to go to work if they're not getting paid except for beautiful, loving volunteers that are getting their rewards other ways. But for the most part, we all go to work because we're going to get that paycheck and it's hard to apply that to kids. That's like a, a hard mindset, but paying for the little steps along the way that we're wanting them to do and then fading that out over time as they get more successful and practice with things. Yeah, that's great. And figuring out what that payment would be for each kid, right? Yes. <laughs> that they enjoy. So we have the holidays coming up and this is a great time to, for parents. You know, it's always chaos, right? Because kids are off mm -hmm. schedule and now they're home and um, mom and dad have to fill that time and try to give them some kind of routine. Um, do you have any advice for how to handle the break from school and the regularly scheduled activities and also the sensory overload that can occur with the holidays? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of times all of us, independent of disability, will go into situations like holidays expecting perfection. And um, it's not really going to be the case. <laughs> and I, I think it's kind of an unattainable goal to kind of think that this is all going to go perfectly and then I'm going to be disappointed when it doesn't. We have to know that there's going to be sensory overload and we can do things to try and help with that and give lots of breaks and set lots of expectations and have our M&Ms ready and all of that stuff and visual schedules and prepping and social stories. But there's still likely going to be a fair amount of sensory overload. Um, there is also the grandparent effect, which <laughs> whenever grandparents, I've named that for whenever grandparents are someone in that type of role visits, they reinforce everything. And then usually all problem behaviors and tantruming and everything kind of goes up. And so knowing that that's likely going to happen while we're seeing, you know, aunts and uncles and grandparents and cousins and our schedule is all off, the grandparent effect will be in full effect. And that's probably also going to happen. And so with that being said, just knowing that there's going to be kind of chaos is, is the first step into <laughs> to dealing with the chaos. But then when you're in it, making sure that you are doing those things that you're doing during the regular um, time. We're still working on setting expectations. We're still working on doing things in small steps. We are focusing on positives and when we're doing things right. Um, and then trying to embed as much of the structure that the regular day provides into the days when that structure is not happening. So most kids are going to school during the year, um, save maybe the COVID year, which we can just skip over, but typically they go to school. It's very structured. We do the same thing every day. Snack is at the same time every day. Our um, activities are at the same time every day. Then break happens and I go home and there's nothing. And some kids are fine with that. And some kids lose it because I lost all of that predictability and structure. So trying to pull the things that are working in their school day or just their regular day into your home as much as you can during the holidays will help too. So we're going to have breakfast at the same time every day. We're still going to have snack at the same time at every day. At 11 o'clock, we're going to do whatever and, and have some sort of 
um, schedule that they're used to looking at so that they you can embed some of that predictability in. And then I, whenever I talk about visual schedules and structure and predictability, I also always talk about kind of programming for flexibility and unpredictable things happening within the predictable schedule. So when kids can handle it, I like to put in one of their um, strips on their schedule might be surprise or Megan's choice or question mark. And then they can, within the safety of their schedule, can start to practice some of those things that I don't really know what's coming next, but it's not going to hurt me and, and getting, you know, used to kind of dealing with those kinds of things. If you start working on flexibility young, then dealing with the holidays is a lot easier because you can kind of work with things coming from left field and people showing up unannounced and presents and things like that. I think it's also important to note some kids don't care about the holidays. And so we don't have to make them care about the holidays. Um, some kids don't really care about opening presents and that's not a big thing to them. Um, and so we don't have to force it on people that that's not where they get their joy. Um, and I think that comes with a lot of added stress for people too, of, um, you know, I, I want her or him to be part of this process, but maybe being part of the process is rocking over in the corner for a little bit and that's okay. Um, they're enjoying the holidays differently than other people might. And we have to be able to accept that. So awesome. Megan, one, one last question that we like to ask every guest on this podcast is what is one thing that you'd like to share with our listeners to help encourage them and to bring hope for the road ahead? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that as long as we stay vigilant and continuing to make small steps towards whatever our goals are, may that be um, independence or um, enjoying activities with families or making a friend. And, and we are seeing the little steps that are happening towards that big goal. Sometimes I think the big goal kind of becomes all encompassing and we kind of lose sight that we're every day getting closer. Um, you know, people that come into this field have to be really rewarded by some of those little steps. I taught a little girl once to feed herself and it took two years. She had autism and uh, Down syndrome and it took two years to get there. But the day that she took that spoon and put it into her mouth, I cried and it was just, you know, a wonderful situation. And I think every day, the family, the kiddo, everybody is striving towards what we're trying to get to. And it's not always a straight line. Sometimes it's bumpy and zigzagged and all of that. But as long as everyone is, you know, keeping those things in sight and, and taking those small steps forward every day, we'll get there. And I think the families that are dealing with an, a newly diagnosed um, little one, would benefit from talking to some of the parents that have teenagers because they still have a, a whole lot of problems, but they're different problems than they had when they were three and, and things get easier and things get better. And as long as you have the right people in your corner, um, all of it's attainable. So I think just focusing on the, the little steps forward is, is what keeps everybody going. Well, thanks, Megan. That is so encouraging. We so appreciate you coming on today's show. I really, I, this has been fabulous. Just learning um, and, and you just have such insight and, and just a beautiful heart for these kids and teens. And we just appreciate that. So thanks for oh, coming. Thank you so much. That means a lot. It's been a joy.
Resources and contact information for today's podcast will be included in the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share us with others and be sure to follow us so you won't miss an episode. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a comment or rating and connect with us on social media or on our website at hopeonthehardroad.org.